Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darko Audio Podcast. With me this time out is once again Jack Ockley-Brown, now retitled as the VP of Technology at KEF in the UK. Welcome, Jack. Thanks, John. Nice to be here. Now, Jack, today we're going to talk about a new loudspeaker called the LS60 Wireless, and it's a floor-standing loudspeaker, it's a streaming loudspeaker, and therefore it's an active loudspeaker. Now, when I first saw this, I thought, oh, it's just the LS50, but a floor-standing version. But apparently, I'm kind of way off the mark with that. Uh, yeah, I, I guess. I mean, a floor-standing... LS50W, something like that is uh, certainly, you know, requests we've seen a lot mm. from users. Um, but yeah, this is something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And I think a bit more exciting, hopefully. And uh, I think to understand it fully, you kind of have to take a little bit of a step back and uh, kind of start thinking, well, why are, you know, why would it make sense to make a speaker active using a mm. kind of same recipe for acoustics as we would with a passive speaker because mm. um, if you th if you think about it that's kind of what what we've done so far if we take um ls50w it was an active version of the ls50 if we take ls50w2 active version of ls50 meta and even the lsx although we didn't make it if you if you made a little passive version of that it would work quite happily mm -hmm. um, whereas this time around we've kind of approached things completely differently and said well now that it is active if you take that as a given it's going to have power amps in it it's going to have dsp in it it's going to have a streamer in it a preamp in it um then would we be able to do things differently if if we you kind of put everything in the pot and mix it all up and and uh, see what we get out so would we necessarily have the same kind of speaker dimensions volume number of drivers, driver positions, if we're thinking about it being active from day one. Right. So this is, is, is it fair to say that this is, you know, un, unlike the LSX and the LS, well, LS50 wireless and one and two, mm -hmm. this speaker was the, from the outset, you had, you had decided to make an active loudspeaker and a floor standing active loudspeaker. Yeah. Yeah. And, and right. from the outset, taking this view of saying, well, you know, how do we make something that you couldn't achieve passively that addresses mm. certain user requirements or needs in a different way because of that. Uh, mm. And so that's why it's different to look at. And that's why it's, in my opinion, much more exciting. Right. So the LS60 wireless is based around the, the same W2 streaming platform that we see in the LS50 wireless 2, right? Yes. And it, so it uses exactly the same app as well. Kef Connect mm. app. Yep. Um, it's got a very similar connectivity, one or two minor changes. Mm. Um, but effectively, yes, it's exactly the same platform, same software support, same service support as uh, LS50W2. Right. So from a streaming point of view, we got Bluetooth, AirPlay 2, Chromecast, Rune Ready, but that's not yep. certified yet. Um, that's not still in the works. Uh, and then we've also got the Kef Connect app, which integrates, I've got to get this right, Kobo's, Tidal, Deezer, Amazon Music. But yep. then there's also Spotify Connect and Tidal Connect. Yep, that's right. And uh, we also have QQ Music, which is quite popular in China. 
Right, right. But that's not available in the in Europe, is it, not or in, in the USA? Not in Europe. Right, not in Europe or the USA. Okay. And and then radio and podcast support within the app as well. So right, it's with actually you know looking around the market, we think we're probably the most comprehensive or one of the most comprehensive streaming platforms there is in you know, in terms of a hi-fi certainly. Well, from my point of view, because I see a lot of products like this, and I pay strict attention to the sort of protocols that are supported by, you know, not just standalone streamers, but speakers like yours. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I don't think you've left anything out. Whereas most products that come my way, there's usually something not there. Like Chromecast is not always there, or maybe Tidal Connect isn't always there. Usually mm. Spotify Connect is, AirPlay is, Rune Ready is, um, Bluetooth is, but yeah. And then the app side of things, see, this is where a lot of streaming hardware manufacturers get tripped up because their app development can not always rely on a basically a, a white label app that's supplied to them by their streaming board provider like stream unlimited so mm -hmm. m connect is one of them and i can't stand m connect i'm sorry to say it. i just i can't get on with it it's it's ugly it's not attractive and it's really it's it's 10 years out of date and i know that sounds really brutal but i think when we look at well, you know, what most people experience in terms of, say, Sonos, I mean, mm. that is the sort of gold standard. And I think your app is the closest I've ever come to a Sonos experience outside of Sonos. Well, that's good to know. I mean, that was certainly our aim. Are we going from our first streaming loudspeaker, the LS50W? We, mm. you know, we listened to a lot of feedback from that. And, it, you know, it was you know, a lot of people saying, why haven't you got airplay support why haven't you got chrome support you know mm. uh, it, why isn't the user experience of the built-in title as good as using the title's own app and i mean that's why we decided to wipe the slate clean and do the w2 platform mm. with hardware that was powerful enough to kind of hit all of the boxes that we'd heard from from users um i mean we're not in the business really of streaming it would make loudspeakers but we don't want to have any barriers if somebody's favorite service is cobuzz use that by all means uh, or amazon music or whatever it happens to be but you know, mm. as long as they're using our speakers that's the main thing for us <laughs> right if you want to use the native apps that are on your phone you can use airplay or bluetooth or chromecast although chromecast is not gapless um so mm. i guess if you want the proper cobuzz experience you'd use it inside your kef connect app yeah, I, I think it's up to the user what they want to do. Certainly, you know, having Chromecast in there and AirPlay in there means that you know it will work with lots of different apps that people have. And mm. Support for those two you know, streaming protocols pops up everywhere these days. Um, so, and, and to be fair, we can never make our Cobuzz built-in experience as rich as using the Cobuzz app. Um, but we try and get as close as we can. Um, and, and so, yeah, the advantage of using our built-in one is things like gapless, a, a little bit more of a slick connection to so things like settings and hardware. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the other hand, you know, by all means, if someone wants to use the Cobuzz app and use uh, the, the Chrome audio or the AirPlay connection, then that's fine by us as well. I mean, I'm making a big deal about the streaming facilities of these loudspeakers up front for one reason, and that reason is that very often even the best product sound-wise can c come undone by a poorly implemented, I guess, app 
slash firmware implementation on the device. You know, if mm. it's sluggish, it doesn't do what you want it to do. I mean, I guess like some of the lessons you learned from having the two apps with the yeah. Kef LS50 wireless, the original, right? I think, see, it's, it's funny because like if you're a Rune user, you don't really notice those because you use those apps once to onboard them and then you go over to Rune and you never look at those apps again. But yeah. I guess if you wanted to do Tidal or Cobos without Rune, then yeah, okay, that, then that's going to be a bit of a problem. But I agree with you totally. I mean, as a, as a user as well, I mean, I've been streaming audio at home for, well, 20 years now. And I remember the early devices were almost miracles. You know, you'd be able to stream podcasts and things, but it used to take you like 10 minutes to find them because of the interfaces. Mm. So, right. you know, it w wasn't really something that could replace your, you know, kind of your music collection at home. Uh, whereas we're kind of in that world now. Um, so, you know, you don't want your listening session to be interrupted by, you know, searches that take 20 seconds to complete and things like that so it has to be slick and, and mm. there's some people setting very very high standards um you know in big big corporations like apple and and um well and tidal and spotify where they're you know their apps that they, they're just very very slick very immediate experience lots mm -hmm. of you know kind of content and media album art lyrics and and you know that that's our user expectation that we're trying to give them a similar experience as, you know, as Kef, which is a much, much smaller <laughs> uh, outfit. And, you know, and our business is speakers, not, not software really, but yeah, of sure. course we have to do it properly. You have to, otherwise, yeah, people will walk away from your product if the, the streaming interface isn't up to, up to snuff. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, let's get back to the speaker itself because, you know, when I unboxed, because I've got a pair at the moment, when I unboxed them, the first thing I noticed was, well, essentially how narrow the front baffle is. And I know one of yep. your colleagues has pointed out that it's you know not much wider than an iPhone, well, standard iPhone is long. So it's, what is it, five inches, something like that, four and a half? Yeah. The, well, I think, the, I, I think the datum for me that works is it's a little bit wider than a CD, if you remember right. those. I've got thousands <laughs> sitting around me here. Yes. Right. But... But that, yeah, that's quite it's, it's quite unusual though for like a what I would call a high end loudspeaker, and I can hear the grumpies on the forums, go, you know, already going, "Oh, it looks like a bloody lifestyle speaker from you know two thousand and eight." But why, yeah, why, Jack? Why does it have such a narrow front baffle? Well, this is where it kind of comes in to say, well, if you're making an active speaker, you don't have to make the same set of compromises and design decisions. So, what we have realised, partly through um, the products we already make. Um, mm. but also partly through talking to customers is that a lot of people don't have understandably a room in where they live that they can say, well, this is my listening room and I you know, can have my speakers wherever I want. It's only me going in there. I can have a big amp to go with them and big footprint for where they're going to sit. Most of us don't have that. Not, I'm included mm. in that. I mean, most of us, we have our systems in, the main living room of the house which is probably shared at least you know for most of us with a partner maybe kids as well mm -hmm. and our system has got to live with the rest of the paraphernalia that goes in there probably sitting either side of a tv probably in many cases being used as the sound for the tv as well mm -hmm. so for those customers you know where do they go if they're if they're a customer who always have already has say ls50 w2 and they've had that quite happily but they want the next step in their audio journey then they, we can't suddenly transform their room and say well here you know how about some 
R7s or R11s because suddenly they need an app, they need a lot more space. So mm. we made a decision to say, well, let's try and use the fact that the speaker is active to push the boundary of performance, but still keeping the, the size envelope of the speaker small and especially the footprint. Mm -hmm. And and so the LS60, that's, you know, once you kind of put all the ingredients in that we have in terms of technology, and that's our aim, and also the, our aim to make the performance higher, this is what comes out. And it's a shock when you see it, but logically, there's a lot of reasons why it looks like that. So, yeah, it's all about having a product which is very versatile, can fit into somebody's space that they share, that they already have, where they have limited space, and also deliver extremely high performance. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the other thing that I noticed just from, well, I, I also have to you know, comment here on what a marvel of engineering the actual packaging is. And <laughs> I, I, you know, cause I, well, it really, it really is like all the instructions and how to unbox them are very clearly detailed on the exterior of the box. And it's a step-by-step -step process. And I, I'm going to assume, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that it was designed this way so that one person on their own could unbox them because yep. they are really heavy. I don't know they exactly how. They're over 30 kilos each each speaker. Yeah. And, and that is <laughs> also something that comes with trying to make something very small footprint that's a floor sounding speaker. That mm. It becomes you know something which could easily be unstable and topple over. Um, and, and so to get around that, we have a very heavy plinth on the bottom. Mm -hmm. which kind of anchors it to the ground means if you knock it it's going to go it's going to wobble but it's going to go back to vertical uh, and then of course we also know you know people are going to be receiving these probably on their own they're going to get them out of the boxes without having too much difficulty so our, our packaging team worked very very hard on that um, and you can do it quite easily on your own in fact it's it's a really good job they've done on it well yeah i mean i can speak to this because olaf and i did a little video about well just showing the unboxing process because i thought it was so well done and he basically filmed every step that i took on my own so he didn't help me unbox them at all because he's holding the camera so mm. i did this and i just thought wow the only difficult part was actually getting them from you know on my rug here to where i think they should sit in terms of you know speaker positioning so i sort of had to walk them over edge to edge on the rug and then put the, sort of lift them the last little bit onto the wooden floor in mm. front of the rug um and i did appreciate the fact that there are no spikes fitted by default which as a wooden floor owner in inverted commas <laughs> I, you know, I thought that was great so i could slide yeah. them a little bit you know so yeah i think um hats off to your packaging design team Thank you. They will appreciate that feedback, I'm sure. And and yeah, I mean, as you said, spikes are are available in in the packaging, but by default, that's right. kind of not something you want to worry about when you're trying to move a heavy speaker initially. <laughs> Just the, the I mean, rubber feet are better for that. Yeah, I think if if I wanted to lift them, move them, yeah, say I wanted to carry them upstairs, that's a two person mm. job. That I couldn't yeah, do it on it my would own. Be. It would be. Yeah. yeah. And then the other thing that I noticed obviously straight away. And I guess you can see this from the images as well. And it's a question I want to ask you is why are the bass drivers so high up the side of the speaker? Why aren't they down the bottom? Well, yeah. Okay. So, so we've got this aim, we're going to make a speaker. It's going to be active. It's um, going to have a small footprint. It's mm -hmm. going to have a much bigger sound than you expect. So from a loudspeaker design perspective, that means I need to have radiating area for the bass. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because it means my cabinet volume is going to be um, pretty little. That kind of rules out having a ported system because when you have a very small cabinet volume, it gets very difficult to tune the port so that you can get deep bass. And we're aiming for a big sound here, so we want very deep bass. So mm-hmm. it's a closed box system. We need a lot of area. Um, so if you were doing this, you know, passively, you'd just make the cabinet really big and you'd have lots of space to put a nice 10 inch or 12 inch driver on the front or something like that, or multiples of smaller drivers. But mm. with the aim we have of a small footprint, the thing that makes sense is to put the base drivers on the sides, then we can make them bigger. We can put more of them. Um, it also means that we can pair them. So we have a base driver on the right hand side and one opposite it on the left hand side and mm-hmm. that's really great from a vibration perspective because we get force cancelling uh, um, okay we can also you know then have multiple voice coils which really helps because we then have something where we've got a lot of power handling in the drivers but the caveat to that is how do we make that system still cross over well so that we get a coherent sound from the bass up to the mid and and luckily for us well or by design for us this is already a technology we have we have Uh, one of our flagship loudspeakers called Blade, where Mm. we use this configuration of drivers so that we get a single source of sound, a single apparent source. And how we do that is we make sure that the width of the cabinet is set in proportion to the crossover frequency between bass and mid. So Mm. it has to be quite narrow. And then we place the bass drivers in kind of an array of four cones symmetrically around the UniQ. And, And naturally, then they end up quite high up on the product. But the benefit of that is that we get very good crossover between the, the bass and the mid-range. Okay, so it's like a, an acoustic advantage to putting the, the bass drivers around the driver on the front. So yeah, you, exactly. this is what you call single apparent source, right? So if, if it sounds like everything's coming from one place. Yeah, and uh, we haven't talked about Uniq yet, but you know, Uniq has this ideal anyway. We try and create a... Uh, sound which is coming from one point in the mid-range and the treble from UniQ. And and you mm-hmm. can kind of think of single apparent source as an extension of UniQ. And so it's tweeter in the very middle producing high frequencies. And around that, there's the mid-range driver. Mm-hmm. And then around that, you have these four bass drivers in this symmetrical array. So everything, bass, mid, treble from a single point in space. Okay. and But did I understand you correctly that this speaker is not ported? That's correct. It's closed, closed box. And okay. The, I mean, it kind of naturally follows that it has to be closed box. Um, it, we're, we're trying to have a very broad uh, bandwidth here, so we want to go down very low in, in, in frequency. Um, ports are great devices for helping augment bass, but you need to tune them you know, down to the lowest frequency you want to reproduce. Once you get below the tuning of the port, you can't get a ported speaker to output much sound. Okay. And to tune the port, you play with its length. And what happens is that the smaller the volume of the box is, the longer the port needs to be. And so if you try and make a, a, a speaker very small and still you know, ported at very low frequencies, you end up eventually just not being able to fit the port in, or the mm. port gets so small in diameter that you get a lot of airflow noise. Um, and so we just made the jump. We said, well, let's make it closed box. And actually in doing that, we can also improve some other aspects of the sound too. So it lets us have a quicker bass response as well. 
So going to a closed box, you have a, a more gentle roll-off of the low frequencies, and that helps to give you a very fast bass sound. Um, it also helps us in some other ways as well. We can um, we have systems in the L60 which do some um, quite clever stuff. One of them is it actively reduces the distortion as you're playing the loudspeaker, and that relies on us having quite a good guess of where the cones are in the DSP, mm. and it's easier to do that when you don't have a port. So it helps us in that respect as well. So you've mentioned two things so far that remind me of the KC62 subwoofer that you put out last year, yeah. in that you've got this sort of DSP correction of distortion, yeah. and you've got force-canceling bass drivers. So is it kind of fair to say that this is this speaker contains two KC62 subwoofers, or is that too much of a generalization? It's a, it's a bit of a generalization, but not a stretch, I would have said. I mean, the chrono chronology is a little bit different from that. So the idea of the LS60 loudspeaker and it being around about 12 centimeters wide and about a meter tall, but performing much better than you expect, that's quite an old idea in KEF R&D. And we, we had a a very rough prototype of that a long time ago, maybe four years ago, something like that. Huh. And the um, the performance of that prototype kind of ticked a lot of boxes, but one thing was quite clear from that is that we needed more bass. Hmm. And at the time, we were using slightly smaller bass drivers in our prototype, and they were conventional. So they had four motors. And okay. uh, you know, we came away from you know listening to the prototype, really encouraged that we were down the right path, but with this problem, saying, "Well, how do we deliver around about six dB more bass?" <laughs> Which is not easy at all. And one of the uh, solutions was quite simple: more power. Um, and then you know, combined with slightly bigger bass cones. And then the last bit was quite tricky, which was we needed to have more movement on the drivers, but without making the cabinet wider. Mm -hmm. And and so we had a kind of few of us sitting in a room scratching our heads on how to do this. And that's when the idea of combining the two motor systems on the opposing base drivers into one popped up. So can we save some space by having one motor that drives the cones on both sides? And very quickly then, you know, the team of people who design drivers for a living, we sketched out the Unicore idea of having one big coil and one small coil so that mm -hmm. uh, they can overlap. <laughs> and that piece of paper got slipped to the edge of the table as a, nobody wants to do that. That looks very difficult. <laughs> and then <laughs> as we talked more and more to each other about other possibilities, kind of ruled other things out and thought, actually, maybe we do need to get somebody just to spend a week and have a look at that, just see if it could work. Mm. And uh, we set one of our engineers onto, onto it, do some simulations. And everything came back better than we expected. <laughs> Oh, so wow. all of the all of the problems that we were worried about, how do you get this motor to have the same strength for you know, a coil on the right side that's big and a coil on the left side that's small? How mm. do you get it to have the same amount of excursion for both these drivers? And what about the mass imbalance on both sides? And it was one of those things where, you know, as you looked into the detail, things just dropped out and it just started to work. And that's where Unicore came from, in fact. And around about that point, the product team we were talking about, wouldn't it be really great if we could do a sub with you know much smaller footprint, super output compared to what you expect it could do? 
so it was just an idea that came about at the right time um, and went into KC62 um, quite slickly. And, and then, you know, we carried on working on it to get it into LS60. And so now a lot of the other stuff that we then, you know, were working on on, L on KC62, like the active distortion reduction, it mm. made sense to get them into the LS60 as well. So are you saying that the the force cancelling side firing drivers that we have in the KC62 actually started with the prototype LS60? Yeah. Yeah, the the Unicorn uh, yeah came out because of the prototype LS60. Unicorn, first, yes, so. I always forget these little these little names, but <laughs> yeah. I, I never forget UniQ, which is obviously the the type of driver you have on the front of the LS60. Now this yeah. is a this is actually slightly smaller than the UniQ inside the LS50 Wireless Two and LS50 Meta. Mm. So is this a new UniQ driver? Yeah, it's brand new. Um, so mm. completely from scratch that one. And um, right. I mean, it's it, it's smaller, but it is almost bleeding out the sides of our <laughs> thirteen centimeter cabinet. So it mm. had to be smaller just to get it into the form factor. So uh, one big advantage that we had compared to LS fifty W or LS fifty Meta is that we don't need it to go very deep. So we didn't need much excursion off that driver, um, right. which is a good thing because we're getting. A much a little bit smaller cone area by going smaller, but you can also see the surround on it's little. It doesn't have to move very much. Um, but you know, in other respects, it's you know quite a challenge because we're trying to hit the kind of performance that you would expect from, say, you know, one of our um, R series level speakers, um, mm -hmm. but with a kind of seventy percent size UniQ and and starting from a smaller tweeter, which is something that can be very challenging to get a really high quality sound from a smaller tweeter. So it, it took a fair bit of development. I mean, it has everything in there um, that we have in terms of UniQ technology. So it's got the metamaterial absorber behind the tweeter. It's got the you know cone net control on the mid-range. It's got tweeter gap damp. It's what we would call a 12th generation UniQ. But yeah, brand, brand new for this loudspeaker. Yeah, I think I must have misspoken before because I probably referred to it as the mid-bass driver. And of course, in the LS60, it's not really doing bass, is it? Because the side-firing woofers are doing that. Yeah, so that's right. This this is technically a three-way loudspeaker, yeah. And therefore, if it's active, it's going to have it's going to have an amplifier for each of the side-firing uh, woofers or bass drivers, right? Yeah, we have a single bass amplifier that drives the four cones. That's a 500 watt. And then you'll have another separate amplifier for the mid-range, so the outer of the UniQ, and yep. another one for the tweeter, the inner of the UniQ, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, so 100 watt class D on the mid-range and 100 watt AB on the tweeter. I guess people want to know, why did you use AB for the tweeter? Um, yeah, it, it just seems like a kind of case of, of that, really is playing to the strengths of the different types of amplifier. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things that's very nice about uh, an active system is that you can mix and match amps and choose ones that suit the signals that are going to get to the driver. So on the LF, um, we need a lot of power. That's because mm. we have not much volume. So we need to use a big amp that's going to drive the cones to their full excursion. So we knew it had to be about 500 watts. If, if you try and make uh, AB amp at 500 watts, it will 
get very, very hot and we've got limited space we can put heat sinks. Um, mm-hmm. So we didn't want to have a lot of heat buildup. So Class D is the perfect amp for that. It's mm-hmm. not actually a standard amp on that either. We have a the same feedback system um, that we introduced in the KC62 where we are monitoring the current being drawn by the voice coils and feeding that back uh, and sensing from the current the motion of the voice coils. Huh. Um, on the mid-range, it's kind of a 50-50 really. You could maybe get an AB in there, but you also it's quite a lot of power, 100 watts, and you're using a fair bit of that when you're playing oh. at full volume. So it it would get quite warm if we made an AB. Um, so we stuck with a Class D. But for the tweeter, 100 watts is very rarely used. When, when you're listening to something at maximum output, you're occasionally getting these spikes, which will be hitting the 100 watt output in the amp. But most of the time, it's cruising. It's just tickling the amplifier. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time, it's less than half a watt, even when you're listening at ear-splitting volumes. So an AB under those circumstances doesn't get anything like as hot as if you had a 100 watt you know, hi-fi amp running a full-range pair of speakers. So in that case, it makes it kind of a viable option. And compared to a Class D, you can get some advantages. You don't have any bandwidth restriction. You don't have any high-frequency filter on there. So we decided mm. to stick with that, and that was you know the best option for us. Right. I guess also because, I mean, I sense this, there's, a, there's still – a resistance to Class D amplifiers. And I guess from a marketing point of view, if you had put a Class D on the tweeter, you would get a segment of the audience going, whoa, it's a good Class D all top to bottom. I'm not buying that. You know, this the, the, yeah, again, the grumpies on the forums would not like that. So <laughs> they wouldn't. Uh, and I can, you know, I, I see this because obviously my comment section is full of comments, you know, of that type. You know, people resisting certain things because they have preconceptions or they had bad experiences, I don't know, 15 years ago, which were probably legit 15 years ago. But I think, yeah, I mean, it's become a cliche to say how far class D amplifiers have come. You know, <laughs> I just, I have. hate saying yeah. it. I can just, I just feel so boring saying that, but it's, it's true. It's true. It's true. I know you think you're right that if you take, you know, even 10 years ago, class D amps, um, there were certainly plenty of bad ones out there. Mm. Um, so nowadays I'm not sure the reputation's quite as deserved as as it was and yeah but still we don't have to make that choice we you know ab makes a lot of sense for a tweeter even now mm. when class d's are a lot lot better so that's yeah that's the direction we we think mm. sensible to go still so how do you get the heat out of the the you know the inside of the cabinet because it's it's not ported so uh, there must be heat generated by those amplifiers right yeah, there is. So uh, one thing you'll notice is that there's a small gap between the bottom of the cabinet and the top of the plinth. It's uh, mm. only about three millimeters. So air comes into that. And then on the back panel of the loudspeaker above the connectors, there's another kind of opening. And that's the mm. exit for the, the hot air. So the, there's a kind of a chimney effect of air coming through there over heat sinks uh, that cools the system. And that's actually very effective. Um, and in fact, the whole of the kind of portion of the speaker below where the terminal panel is, that's all mm. the electronics. There's no acoustic volume in there. The acoustic volume is just above that. So it's kind of like a, the bottom third of the cabinet is just the electronics. So, so it's, it's not sealed off in its own little area, right? Yeah, yeah. So we, you know, the, the you know, there's lots of things dissipating power, but the drivers is a big 
part of that. The drivers, you know, are handling a lot of power. They get hot. They also heat the chamber that they're sitting in. So we didn't want to have to put other things that are also generating heat into that same chamber with no mm. air passage out. So that, that's how we've managed it in this case. And, you know, in, in a way that we could not compromise what the designers wanted to do as well. So we didn't have to, you know, insist on huge heat sinks that um, would then, you know, restrict what they're they're working on. Uh, okay, so the so basically the bottom of the speaker is is where all the electronics are. It has its own chamber and it's air cooled with this chimney effect. Break the, the air comes into the front at the very bottom and then exits sort of at the upper portion of that chamber at the back. Yeah, is that right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah okay. Exactly. Right. Okay. And then if we look at that sort of connectivity panel on the back of the primary speaker this tells us how we get music into the ls60 wireless right so we've got an ethernet connection which you'd expect it also does i mean i've got mine connected through wi-fi because mm -hmm. i can just use the google home app just to onboard them super easily and then it does work a bit like a, an ls50 wireless 2 in that if you run an ethernet connection between the two you get a 24192 connection. Is this right? And then Wi Fi, it's 2496, right? Yeah, that's correct. So the link between the loudspeakers is, yeah, 96 kilohertz, 24 bit. It's not mm. Wi Fi, it's a proprietary link. But um, so it doesn't, you know, you don't need to have Wi Fi in your house to have that link active. But yeah, it's mm. seamless and that's how it ships like that. But I mean, a lot of customers buying this system are looking for ultimate performance they may be subscribing to streaming services that provide 192 so yeah the cable allows them to um have a compatible uh speaker link with with you know up to those frequencies right okay so if you're a cobas user and you're really into the very sort of highest of high res like 192 kilohertz you need the ethernet interlink cable but if yeah. you're like me and you're quite happy with cd quality streaming you go with the, and I won't say it again, I won't say Wi-Fi, I'll say it wireless, <laughs> proprietary, right? I always use those terms interchangeably, Wi-Fi, wireless, because to me, yeah, I guess unless it's, you know, we're talking about one object talking to another object from a, you know, a hardware manufacturer, yeah, it's not Wi-Fi, is it? It is a wireless thing. But it, it's, it's, what is it? Is it like a radio frequency? What kind of communication protocol does it yeah, use? Yeah, it uses, it uses a similar kind of bandwidth to Wi-Fi, but it doesn't, you know, interoperate with anything else on your network. It's just point right. to point. Yes, um, yes. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a really great little, um, you know, link, and it, it's got controlled latency and it's lossless. Um, so it's perfect for what we want to do. You know, actually, Wi-Fi is a much we should have reserved that word, not let the network guys nick it, because it's much more appropriate for wireless hi-fi, right? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. It is, yes. Wi-Fi, hi-fi, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the puns can... I mean, I love this kind of stuff, you know, just talking... You're trying, well, trying to get a, uh, a title, uh, because trying to design titles for YouTube videos is an art. It really is, and I've, I've really kind of honed in on it in the last 12 months. And, you know, you've got to get the right words, and sometimes a bit of a play on words is extremely powerful, more, oh, yeah. far more so than, than, you know, like a website article, because th those can be quite pedestrian and functional. But, I mean, I don't talk about this very often, but a video's success in terms of viewership is determined primarily by the thumbnail, then the title, and then the contents of the video, number three, right? So you've got to get people to click on it 
So you have to have a good title. It's so puns like, like Wi-Fi, hi-fi. Writing, I guess. You know, yeah, like, it is. It is that. Papers, that front page. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it can it can veer into sort of clickbait territory if you use best too often or this destroys that or whatever. But I think as long as the the substance of the video, you know, as long as it substantiates your your title, then I think you're okay. It's where it doesn't really go near it. I think there's a bit of a problem. I think that's why people complain about clickbait. But anyway, I'm, I'm going off on a, a tangent here. Um, let's talk about wired connections because this is always a, a bit of a hot button issue for a lot of people, right? Because you've got, I've got, I've got to get this right because I'm not looking at the speakers right now. You've got <laughs> Toslink, which yep. I think is mandatory because that pretty much talks to any kind of TV streamer, games console, legacy CD player, legacy you know music streamer. It's just a catch-all um, connector. And yep, then you've 100%. also got coaxial as well, so coaxial spdif. Mm -hmm. And then you've got HDMI arc, or it's eARC, isn't it? So it's I gotta say, get that right. Yeah. You're right. Now that one I'm really excited about because I just bought a, a TV. I've I've been years without a normal TV, Jack. I've been using a projector, and I've finally caved in and bought a normal <laughs> TV. And I've actually got a Samsung frame now. Oh, um, very nice. Yeah, because I, I bought a Samsung TV because of HDMI eARC. And I bought mm. a Samsung, and I bought a little one thinking, well, I'll just get a little one so I can take it in and out really easily. But I was so impressed with it. I thought, I want to put this on the wall. But I bought a 43-inch, so I thought, no, I can't put that on the wall because it'll look <laughs> tiny. And then I was looking around, and then I saw I saw that the Samsung guys had updated the frame, so that basically the screen is matte. So the QLED I had before is actually a better panel, but the frame is matte, so you can display artwork on it when it's off, when it's in standby. And that for me was gold because I hate the sort of black hole that is an off yeah, TV. Yeah, they don't look great, do they? They really don't. So this thing is is perfect for me, and, and I want to use you know use it for now playing screens, and have started to do so. But I've also you know started digging into eARC and using that, and I'm actually amazed at what a joy the convenience is of having just one remote to kind of go up and down with the volume, oh, and it's, it's just mandatory. <laughs> it really is. I I, I mean we LS fifty W didn't have HDMI and kind of surprised us actually just the tv usage the extent of the tv usage on that product people were using mm. the optical obviously and you know then the feedback you get is you know wouldn't it be nice if you could change the volume wouldn't it be nice if it turned on when i turned on my tv can you do that in the software and toslink you can't of course there's nothing you can do but mm. um hdmi is you know the solution that really makes the product usable um and also usable for you know, maybe the non-audio files in the household so that your partner can just come in and turn on the TV and the speakers come on and the volume control just works. And and that's a big deal. I, th I think for these kind of products that are likely to be going into shared spaces, you have to have something that just works for everybody, not just for the techie expert, you know, who's, who's bought the product. Otherwise right. it doesn't yeah. last very long in that room. It gets rejected out. <laughs> so sure. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's um it's really, really yeah, if you I did it for a bit. I used um you know a hi-fi system with a toss link from the TV and I got, you know, everyone in the house up to speed on oh yeah, turn on the DAC, turn on the amp, now you'll get sound. <laughs> but yeah, not having to do that is much much. But you also have to select the right input on the DAC as well. 
Do. And then also the right a- input on the app. Because, things can go wrong. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, if you have a visitor, you know, my parents come and stay. I can't get sound mm. from the TV. <laughs> <Every Right. time. laughs> so, yeah, HDMI is fantastic from that respect. And uh, optical, though, I think is still essential because, you know, mm. HDMI ARC has been around a while. There's a lot of old sets that have an early version of it. Mm-hmm. We've seen some some TV sets with different implementations which slightly catch out the software. So Optical's still there as a fallback, and, back, and our software guys continue to try and get you know these kind of fringe cases to work. So you know that's a, a job for them to catch up with all of the ones that are a bit dodgy. Right. Yeah, I guess I think HDMI 2.1 seems to be a bit of a, I don't know, it just seems to be a game on for anybody that wants to just call their product 2.1 compliant. I don't think the uh... yes, yeah, it's, it's getting better. I would say. Mm. Um, I mean, things that can, there are a few things that can catch it out, and some TV sets have got the C HDMI CEC disabled by default, and that's the critical bit if you want the speaker to react to the volume button press on the remote, or you want it to come on when you turn on your TV. Right. So, so I learned that the hard way. I'm like, why is ah, it not yes, working? Yeah. And then I really because I'm you know I'm new to TVs again. I mean, this is my first like proper normal tv in about 12 years so this hdmi is it's it's a new world for me mm, and it's mm. I, I i mean people like to poo poo convenience right i don't need the convenience but the thing is when you use it you go oh wow this is <laughs> this is very convenient right it's, it makes things <laughs> super totally simple easy, yeah. totally so because i've got like i mean in front of me i've got six remote controls and they're all for different <laughs> things that i might be using at any one time and with the LS60, so we'll call them the proper name, LS60 Wireless, I can just reach for my TV remote and just yeah. click it on and, it, and then it will turn on the speakers and then whatever I'm playing on the TV, including things like Plex, uh, Tidal, and now I've got an Apple TV 4K so I can use Apple Music. That's actually the thing I'm really into at the moment. So, um, yeah, just all from one remote. It's bloody marvellous. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I think, I, I mean, convenience means you use the product more. That, that's the bottom line. I mean, for me, Chrome audio is kind of like that as well because on, you know, I'm a radio listener in the morning first thing when I have my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. And before you know, we had Chrome audio support in our products, I'd listen to the radio on the little you know, crappy <laughs> thing that plugs in the wall. But the, uh, you know, since we've got now Chrome audio, just ask my uh, home hub to play the radio, on it comes, and I use it every day now. And, and huh. you know, I'm, I mean, that's not what you'd kind of call kind of our main target of, of you know, hi-fi music listening, but it still means I'm using the product more. And, you know, that makes it better value for me you know, as, as a customer. So these things are actually really, really important, I think, once you think, well, these products are not really being sold, in most cases, they're not kind of being sold to one person and one user. It's normally a, a household use case. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got to be able to, uh, you know, make the thing work around people's lifestyles and how they want to use it. I mean, I would go so far as to say, and maybe this is a bit bold, and maybe this is just, you know, newcomer enthusiasm, but it seems to me the HDMI eARC is the bridge for the hi-fi world to the more mainstream type buyer. Yeah, I, you. It's quite bold, but no, you might be right. There. It's, I think it's a little bit bold. <laughs> it's part of the recipe. I think Bluetooth is certainly in that category because mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we include it obviously, but 
I think most serious audiophiles would know that that's a limited connection for audio quality, but we've got to have it there because so many people know how to use it. And you've got a friend come around and, you know, they've got their phone and they've got a piece of music they really want to play with you. Bluetooth is still mm. the go-to for that to say, well, okay, like, just put it in Bluetooth mode and you can connect because everybody's done it a hundred times. Mm-hmm. Or is it, you know, otherwise you're scraping around for Wi-Fi passwords, describing to them what the, uh, you know, the Chrome Chromecast audio icon looks like or whatever it is so it it's it's got to be there all of these kind of little um extra connectivity that make you know, the product more rounded and versatile have you ever been to somebody's house where they're trying to get you onto their wi-fi network for whatever reason and they go hang on a minute let me just get you the password and what they do is they turn their router upside down and they start <laughs> reading you a, a, a 25 character random string you ever yeah. had that? And it's just like, what the, what, what kind yeah, of situation or, or you, is you know, this? The, the classic one you get, though, is the WhatsApp <laughs> photo of the bottom of the router. Oh, yes. It's out of focus. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to read it. Oh, yeah. like, I just, I, I can't know. I, re- I refuse. So you're right. <laughs> Bluetooth is really, is really good for that. But it is audibly compromised. Yeah. I have actually tried Bluetooth um, today on the LS60 wireless of you coming out of my TV, actually. So using that as the output device. Mm-hmm. And you can hear that it's not as good as even HDMI eARC and or streaming, you know, it's, mm. I think for me, HDMI eARC is, I don't want to labor this point so much, but I guess it's a, it's a new world that I'm discovering. So the t- most TVs resample audio to 48 kilohertz because they're usually Android or Linux based. And that seems to be a standard way of operating. I don't personally care too much about that. Because it doesn't ding sound quality as much as, say, going from CD quality to a Bluetooth mm. codec. Yeah. But, yeah. No, you're right. I mean, the the, the spec, though, for HDMI eARC is uh, PCM quite, and, and they support many different sample rates, all the standard ones. So, you know, if, if um, you know, you have a compatible bit of equipment, it can be lossless. Um, but I think you're right. Mm. It's already a lot better than, say, using the Bluetooth connection from your TV, infinitely better. Miles better. Yeah, and, yeah, for and sure. Then yeah. The other thing, I mean, it depends what your source is, but if you're listening to anything broadcast, um, you know, so the live TV, for example, that tends to be lossless, loss, lossy encoded audio. And, mm. and lossy encoded audio then encoded again to send over bluetooth is very very bad that that gives you a double whammy of of audio deterioration when you have two lossy codecs in one and then the other so Mm. yeah hdmi is much better for you know connecting a tv it makes much more sense yeah i just think it's the sweet spot you know for, for kind of keeping audio nerds like you and i happy but also allowing accessibility to sort of mums and dads and you know yeah. family and whatever i think it's pretty cool anyway like I, I'm, I'm talking about hdmi so much <laughs> however it does well, this does bring me to the kind of i guess what i would call the spicy issue here is that there is no usb and you're going to get some grumbling about this jack i know you are can i ask you why is there no usb but there is spit of coax well we took the hit already i think in terms of grumbling because ls50w <laughs> had the usb um, LS50W2, we took it out and replaced mm-hmm. it with the HDMI. And, I mean, ah, that was the trade, okay. That was the trade. And and for all the reasons we've just talked about, and I think we certainly had USB um, users who, you know, unfortunately we then didn't carry on that support. But that mm. use case is more of a kind of desktop situation, I think, where you've got, you know, 
your computer there and you've plugged in the speakers. And LS50W2 is really a bit big for that. Some people do use it like that, but most most people are looking for a smaller speaker like the LSX in that situation. Mm-hmm. And and the LS60 even more so. It, it, it's, you know, have to draw the line somewhere. And, and so, unfortunately, that's where the line is. So HDMI is in, USB is out. And the coax support is... Um, on the LS50W2, we're quite limited on panel space, so we had mm-hmm. to compromise on a couple of things. So one of them was that the aux in was 3.5 mil jack, and the other one was we only provided the TOS link in for digital. Mm-hmm. So being a bit of a bigger speaker, we've got a bit more space, so those are the two extras that you you know we can fit in on the LS50 wireless, uh, LS60 wireless, the proper RCA input for the aux and the additional... Um, coax input um i mean toslink it in theory is limited to 9624 support you could often find bits of equipment that will go a bit higher than that depends mm. a little bit on how well the hardware is implemented whereas coax digital it's quite happy going above that so that's why we wanted to get it in there for this kind of higher end product right i see okay well, as long, I guess as long as people know that it was a trade-off between or a standoff between HDMI eARC and USB, I think they might understand better why you went with HDMI eARC and not USB. Yeah, it's always going to be frustrating, though, isn't it, if that was the use, you know, the use case you particularly had. But that's why, yeah, at least maybe understanding the choice uh, hopefully makes sense of it. Well, yeah, because even I mis- misunderstood the choice because I was like, well, why can't you put USB in for Go? coax but obviously that's not a trade-off that you could easily make i would think yeah as i say yeah we kind of have to draw the line somewhere we're trying to you know they're great products but they're also designed to be you know at, at a particular price and if we keep building in feature after feature after feature we make something that you know, isn't as affordable um so mm. we do draw the line somewhere and it's sometimes because of cost of adding the feature but there's also practical constraints on physically the hardware or the physically the connectors so yeah that that's just where it, the line was in this case okay can we talk a bit about the future i'm going to get you to kind of predict a little bit here jack because this is something that i think a lot of newcomers to streaming active loudspeakers worry about they think well what you know where's my product going to be in five years or 10 years is it still mm. going to be supported is it still going to work you know what happens if I mean, I know Google's unlikely to pull Chromecast, but it might because they pulled their little hardware puck, but I don't think they'll pull the protocol. But, you know, like you, I mean, you as a company obviously have to keep pace with those changes if this product is going to be functional in 10 years' time. I mean, is that on the KEF roadmap? Yeah, it's something we're very aware of now. Um, I think um, we see lots of concern as well on on forums or on service mm. calls saying you know what's what's the lifetime of this product um one thing i think it's important to see is that we're platforming so the software you know that's used to control the ls50w2 is exactly the same software as the ls60 mm-hmm. and that's very important for longevity so that we can focus our resources if we're trying to maintain different platforms for different products, we soon end up with, say, 10 bits of software that we're trying to do legacy support for, and it becomes something we can't manage. Um, so that's strategically one important mm. factor. 
the other thing I would say, you know, is we we need to express this more clearly, and we're talking about how we do that. But we, you know, are intending a long term support for the software on the app and updates on the product too. I think that's mm. something we can perhaps have a conversation about how how do we make that statement because. I mean, we're all quite used to the idea that on hardware, you'd have some kind of warranty that covers, you know, faults on the hardware. And we kind of need to think about some kind of software guarantee, the service mm. lifetime. Um, and then I think the last thing to say is that, you know, there may be changes. So you might get to the point where, say, a streaming provider doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, that'll be interesting when it happens. <laughs> and obviously then, <laughs> you know, we can't, you know, then support that either but the features that you buy will not disappear so you know if google turns off chrome then you know obviously the the chrome protocol on our product becomes something that isn't useful but it's still on our product you know as you mm. take this off the forecourt it has these features and these features continue to exist i mean the absolute worst case scenario is you know your internet connection is cut it's still an active speaker that sounds fantastic. You can use it with hardware inputs. So mm. it, the software aspect is important and it is one we, we continue you know, to, to improve and support and we have commitment to it long term. But you, you, know, you still have something there that's extremely usable in, in the long mm. term. Um, See, I think where the angst might arise with, with KEF specifically is because you with your first range of streaming active loudspeakers i'm mainly thinking of i guess lsx and before that ls50 wireless version one is that you've made a jump to a new streaming platform and those older products were not powerful enough to adopt that streaming platform Mm. and therefore all the updates that come comes with it so people might be a little bit wary of kef yes i mean for the if we Looking at LS50W and LSX, they mm. they had features that, well, the new platform, the W2, has features that we couldn't implement mm. in, in the originals. The, the originals still support the feature set they had at the point they were launched. It's just it was the limitation of that platform. We couldn't do more than that. Mm-hmm. And I think you can see that in in what services we support still on that platform. You know, there isn't the same. There isn't AirPlay support. There isn't Chromecast Audio support. There isn't Tidal Connect support. The, the hardware didn't have the horsepower to do it. Hence, mm. you know, from a hardware perspective, we had to go right. We need to make a jump, have a new platform, make it much more capable. Mm-hmm. And and so that's what we we had to do. But you know, as I say, the the W two platform that we have today, it's got all these features that we're going to continue supporting and you know we're looking at it as a platform with a wide range of products on it as well so right now now we've got ls50w2 we've got ls60 wireless and there will be more products on that platform as well in in, you know in in the future i see okay so this is the platform around which you will build future streaming products whatever they will be it will continue to be that you won't make a jump to a another platform in say two years no no not in not in two years i mean i it's very hard to predict beyond, you know 10 years will we still be using w2 you know it, it depends on the landscape i think of what happens in audio but at the moment looking at kind of streaming side of things um mm. 
you know, the, the platform is very capable. It's got a lot of uh, hardware grunt. Uh, it's updatable over the air. We can. It's you know, something which does have longevity. Um, and, and even now, looking at what's on the horizon for streaming services, um, you know, I think I think there's nothing there that's like very um, like a paradigm shift that would mean suddenly, you know, there's something new that we just can't do. Mm. Um, and and say there was, say there's a paradigm shift and there's some new paradigm in in streaming audio. The W two will still support everything up until that point, and we continue mm. to you know give it updates. Um, it, on the bits we can, um, but no. So I think uh, I, I think as as much as as much as we can see into the future, yeah, it's um, it's very future proof. Um, as I say, I, we kind of we do we do know we do know this concern, and um, mm. I think we can we can work harder to um, address it and make some you know guarantees to the to the customer about our yeah. I think in that particular it. yeah that kind of case, you need to almost. Uh, overplay your hand because I know that it's not a game where subtlety works. Like in trying to communicate that message that we know we're going to support this for the long term, you need to make it loud and clear and often and in big letters, right? Because yeah, I, I'm totally with you. And there's parallels in, in other industries, you know, like, um, it, for example, you know, if you buy a, this is a bit, maybe a dull industry, <laughs> but if you're buying kind of, uh, enterprise uh, servers or something like that you you know you'd you'd have these kind of software longevity guarantees <laughs> absolutely explicit this is supported for right, a number of years like ubuntu linux comes with an lts version right there's a normal ubuntu linux and then there's an lts version long term support right I think so they'll we have guarantee something that else for... in common here john i am on ubuntu as well there you go <laughs> well i've only played with it but or heard of it. i only read about it you know <laughs> But no, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. So we need to work harder on that. Absolutely. Yeah. But the thing is, if you contrast that with the mobile phone market, yeah. so if you look at Android phones, generally support on Android phones is only three years if you're lucky. If you've got a Google phone, it might be a bit longer. But if you pick up a Samsung, what is it, two and a half, three years, and then no more updates. Mm. And then you're left twisting in the wind. Apple are much better. I've got to say they are much better with long-term support of their phones. I mean, I've still got an iPhone 6S Plus from 2014, and it's still getting iOS updates almost eight years later. So I think that's, that, that's really good. You know, I think 10 years is probably a reasonable benchmark for most operating systems or, you know, whatever you call it that runs on a speaker. I guess it's a firmware or yeah, software code. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I totally agree with you. And, and we're, you know, our... Oh. In Maidstone, we have the UK Service Centre, so we see people coming back with products, passive products, where they've had them happily sitting in the living room, using them every day. You know, thirty years later, they're still they're still happily playing away, and so that's what you know. That's that's great. That's supremely green. That's what we should all be aspiring to do: is mm. make these products that you know they last decades, and 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 we mustn't forget that just because they're active uh, or or have software in so. Yeah, it's an important message for us. Uh, mm. And yeah, we need to be clearer, I think, about um, telling people what our intentions are. So yeah, we'll try and do that. Jack, let's talk about base for a moment, because one question I know that will come up with the LS60 wireless is, do I still need a sub? I mean, do yeah. I need to connect my KC62 to these LS60 wireless, or am I, am I good without it? No, I, I think emphatically, we can say most people won't need a sub. 
Mm. There's always people who want a sub, but most people will not need a sub. So this is really the crux of the whole emphasis. So this is a speaker which has a smaller footprint than an LS50W2, but can deliver much louder and louder sound, bigger soundstage and deeper bass. Mm -hmm. And actually, technically, if you compare, you know, the amount of, we call it volume displacement, but how much air can the product move? This is like a sub already. So, you know, you have on each loudspeaker, you've got four, five and a quarter inch cones that have high excursion. So it can move a lot of air. It can go, you know, all the way down to 20 hertz. We obviously have protection systems in there. So if you want to play really loud, it doesn't extend all the way down anymore just to protect the driver excursion. But no, Mm. it's seriously full bandwidth. And, you know, I I think that's something that, is a really key thing because it it's would be easy to look at this speaker and think, well, this is not for me. This is a lifestyle product. But no, really, we haven't tried to do that. We've tried to make something that ticks both boxes. You know, this is, mm. you know, obviously an exercise in design in one respect, but it's absolutely a seriously engineered speaker using all the tricks we've got to make something more convenient that delivers really, really good sound. Mm. So what's the LS60 wireless's, um, would it be a minus 6 dB point or a minus 3 dB point the, in, in, the, in the bottom end? Yeah, if you're playing um, moderate volumes and you're, uh, there's three different bass settings, but if you're in the extended setting mode, then the minus 6 dB point is around about 25 hertz, something mm-hmm. like that. That's measured in an anechoic chamber as well. So in a real room with room gain, they're going all the way down. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's like it already has a sub. And and really the reason you might add a sub is if you wanted to have that bass extension at higher volumes. So if you wanted if you needed to play loud with a lot of bass. But I must say it goes very loud before those protection systems have to kick in anyway. And I I think one one other key thing is that you know when when you have a system where you have something like a a, a 2.1 system, so uh, bookshelf speakers say that go down, you know, 60 hertz, something like that. And then mm. you try and cross it over. It You never, even as a professional setting those systems up, you never get the integration that you can of a three-way system where you've got, uh, we know in the in the LS60 wireless, we know exactly where those bass drivers are. We've, we've placed them very carefully around the UniQ to make mm. that LF to RF crossover sle- seamless. Mm-hmm. And we've also got them in stereo. We've got, LF drivers near the left channel, LF drivers near the right channel. So we don't have this compromise of, okay, the sub position there is great for the right speaker, but not for the left. So the kind of bass coherence that you get from the LS60 wireless is very, very difficult to achieve with a substat system. So Mm. we kind of know this comparison will come up of, you know, oh, should I have LS50W2 plus KC62 or should I have LS60 wireless? But you kind of only have to hear the systems very briefly to kind of understand what it gives you having a full bandwidth main speaker rather than a subset. Yeah, I guess that will be the number one question that I anticipate getting. And the thing is about the subset system for me, you know, living or listening in a six meter by five meter room is that having a subset system, I have I guess more control over the base, even though it's much harder work to cross 
it over with the loudspeaker. But if I've got, say, a Lingdorf or an NAD or a Blue Sound or even that Sonos amp, I was looking at that today, 800 bucks, it does um, crossover, high pass and low pass for the ma- sorry, low pass the sub, high mm-hmm. pass the mains. So that takes care of a lot of the, the I guess, the pain and the ass work that you have to do when integrating a sub. And I, I quite like the flexibility. So I can sit there, I can turn the bass up, I can turn the bass down. I can, with the Lingdorf, I can delay the bass if I need to, or I can delay the mains output. So I can, mm-hmm. I can align it better. I know you've done that inside your LS60, but I, I guess with flexibility, with that flexibility comes, yeah, the, the pain in the ass factor of having to design your own <laughs> crossover, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That, I mean, most of those things you don't, you just don't need though. Once once it's in a, a full bandwidth system, so I mean your controls that you were describing there to play around with high and low and delay mm. and phase. That's all to try and get everything to blend together. Um, yes. Whereas it's already done for you in the LS60. And I, I mean, there's also something that comes with having that low crossover. So that mm. kind of typical kind of 50, 60 hertz high pass that gets applied to the the satellite speakers and the low pass applied to the sub. You know that's not completely free. There you get some uh, smearing, some group delay in that that you don't get in in the LS60 because that crossover is higher up. It's phase corrected. I mean, you do obviously have more things to tweak. You maybe can personalize it more, but I just think that ultimately, which one will deliver you more coherent, more cohesive mm. bass? It, it's it's the LS60 every time for me. So yeah. <laughs> So I have two questions related to what you've just said. The first one is the, so in the app, in the Kef Connect app, there are three, three modes to run the base. There's standard, more, and less, right? Yeah. Now you said the more g- takes us down to 25 hertz, 3 dB down, right? What, do you know off the top of your head what standard and, and less give you? Or oh, not off the top of my head in, in those terms, um, but it's, <laughs> It's um, deep bass steps of around about 4 dB. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, the 25 minus uh, 6 dB was for the extended. So if you, you know, go to standard, it's the 20 hertz, 4 dB less. And if you right. go to um, less, it's then 4 dB, again, less than standard. Now, that's pretty much a control that we would say is more or less how big is your room. Uh, so if you've got a small room where you're getting a lot of deep bass gain simply because mm-hmm. of the size of it, then that's where you, you know, you, the user would probably better put less or if they've got a cavernous room, <laughs> put more. Um, and then, you know, there's another control, which, which you can use to tune things in those settings, which is the wall mode. So that's mm-hmm. uh, kind of essential with a speaker like this, where it's got a small footprint kind of it's natural people are going to tuck these things quite close to a wall either side of a tv mm-hmm. and so you're going to get gain from that wall so we have a mode in the app where you can just take that down a bit as well so you know there's plenty of tweakability you don't have this sub to main speaker high pass low pass and all the tweaks that come with that but we've, we you know there's still ways to adjust the sound to optimize it for your listening situation yeah because i'm you know, in my room, I was playing with it earlier on. Now, with with some of the electronic stuff that I like, with a lot of low bass content, I want to push the less bass extension button because I don't yep. need because the, the 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 standard mode for me, I can hear it triggering. I've got this thirty five hertz mode, right? There's nothing I can do about it mm-hmm. literally because it's built into the dimensions of the room. 
So unless I load, you know, the room with, let's say, and I'm not, I'm not exaggerating here. I'd need about 20 base traps to capture all of that and to do something about it. <laughs> so, you know, I'd rather just push the less button on your app. But when it comes to say more, I guess more, let's call it normal music, like Tom Waits or Nick Cave, or I'm just looking at my wall of CDs, REM, Peter Gabriel, yeah, you know, yeah. that kind of thing, standard bass is fine because I get the nice sort of weight in the low end, especially at low volumes, which I like. Um, mm -hmm. I do wonder, though, whether you've ever considered, there's a feature in a book art speaker that I played with a couple of years ago where they do Fletcher Munson correction. So when you take the volume down, it introduces a curve that kind of lifts the low end and the top yeah, end. Yeah. Right. Have you ever thought yeah. about putting that into a speaker? Because I thought that was wonderful. But maybe yeah, there's a, a reason like, why not. I don't know. No, no, there isn't. Uh, I mean, I think that's a good idea. We used to have these loudness buttons. Yes. Uh, that kind of did the same thing. No, it's it's nice idea. I think, I mean, one of the things that's great about an active DSP speaker is it's got this kind of whole load of versatility that you can do all these things. And, and you know, I think there's plenty that we can still explore. Mm. So that could be one of them. That could be one of them. Um, we've got a you know program that's quite aggressive in terms of development of DSP features. So uh, some of these features we can we can you know listen to the market, listen to feedback, and and try and get them implemented. Um, I think certainly you know one thing that we're trying to address in our own particular way is is this optimizing of sound for the actual room that people have. I mean, I think mm. we've only dipped our toes in it. It so far but that's clearly something where uh dsp active speaker has got a huge advantage because it's it's not one thing you know when we ship a passive speaker that's how it sounds there's no mm. controls and, and with dsp you know there's so many ways you can adjust the speaker and what we've done is fairly simple i think in the future i'd certainly like to try and make that um easier we, we know a lot of people never find those menus you know from from our feedback we get from the app, lots of people never enter the, the speaker settings menu. So how do we give those guys a better experience? And then mm. for power users like yourself, John, where you know, okay, I've got this particular problem and it's at 30 hertz, then the controls we provide at the moment, you know, they are not targeted enough for someone like you. So, yeah, there's some great possibilities, and I think that's for us to explore and, and try and, Put, put some updates out there in the future that can hit some of these, you know, really nice suggestions. I mean, is the W2 platform powerful enough to implement Kef's own version of, say, Sonos's, is it called True Play, where you wave your phone around and it corrects, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, it would be. It, I mean, there's, nothing, there's no reason why not from the platform's perspective. Um, mm. I mean, I wouldn't underplay how much development works went into that oh, no, right so that's probably the bigger bigger challenge from us you know our perspective is, is getting that system so that it actually gave you a good setup that was always an improvement but ultimately at the end of that it, it's applying some correction filters and the platform can do that no mm. problem at all talking of correction filters so in the app there's a there's in the eq settings screen there's a little toggle switch for something called phase correction. Yes. Now, this is obviously something you can do in DSP to make sure that all frequencies leave the speaker at the same time. Is that is, is that a good way of explaining it or not? Yeah, that's it, it's pretty much exactly that. So anytime the signal passes through, <laughs> anything that 
limits its band. So mm. that could be a crossover filter. It could be a bit of EQ that we've got running, or it couldn't be the drivers themselves because they obviously have limited bands. Then you get a kind of effect where some frequencies are delayed and others are not. Mm. And so when you have a, a full, say, three-way speaker with all the crossover in there, all the different drivers, the uh, group delay, as we call it, is quite non-flat. So some frequencies mm. are not delayed, some are delayed moderately, some are delayed quite a lot. Mm. And phase correction basically puts that all, to, all, all back to normal. And the way it does that is it implements a filter which is the reverse of the group delay of the speaker. So uh, it wouldn't okay. delay low frequencies at all because they tend to be the worst in terms of group delay. It would delay then the HF by just the right amount so it leaves the speaker at the same time as the low and, and the same with mm -hmm. the mid, if, if that makes sense. And we had that on W2 uh, as well. But the, the thing now is this is a three-way speaker. So you know, the more complex your speaker is, the worse the group delay becomes. And, and so it's much, much bigger effect on on the ls60 than it was on the ls so hang on so th this is well sorry I, I don't want to cut you off but i don't want you to preempt my observation so my observation <laughs> is this right so with ls50 wireless 2 clicking that button on and off i was doing i, I remember doing it a couple of years ago going oh i don't really hear much of a difference to be honest mm. like if i'm really and i just no it's to so click it on yeah oh, okay no not really but i was doing it earlier on with the ls60 wireless and there the difference is it, it, I won't say it's huge, it's not night and day, but it is, it's there, there's a difference. And that surprised yeah. me. So why is it, you, well, you were about to lead me there, I think, really. Why is it more apparent on the 60 wireless and not the 50 wireless too? Yeah, so uh, that's exactly what we found as well. When we did it on the S50 wireless too, and we were all extremely, very excited about it, because from an engineering perspective, it's really tidy. You know, it's, it's mm. a... A problem that is in all passive loudspeakers. So you, you have basically the HF doesn't get delayed and the mid gets delayed. So mm. you know, great, we've built a filter, it puts it back together. Now, you know, when you put in something that's got, say, uh, broadband and clear transients, you don't see them messed up again. So you, if you take a square wave, you press the face correction button, it comes out like a square wave. And and then mm -hmm. you know, listening to it, it's kind of like, well, can I, can't I hear the difference? Should we, shouldn't we put this in? We put it in. We thought, thought you know, it's on the threshold of audibility. Sometimes it seemed to be doing something. Other recordings, it didn't. Mm -hmm. But yeah, LS60 wireless, same experience, that it seems to be much more important. I believe that's just because the starting point is worse. So on a three-way speaker, you have a group delay irregularity because of two crossover points now and one of them is much lower in frequency which means that the amount of group delay in milliseconds is a lot more so the one between mm -hmm. the lf and the mf it, it causes a lot more milliseconds of group delay mm. and, and so correcting it you know seems to be a much more important thing in terms of audibility than it was on you know a two-way with a relatively small number of milliseconds of correction uh, and it's interesting it's very interesting i think in terms of you know these these kind of comments you hear about, oh, I really like two-way loudspeakers because they have these characteristics. So it makes you wonder, well, how much of this is this aspect of it? I mean, there's mm. lots of other things like directivity and box coloration as well, but these might be one bit of the puzzle. So yeah, nice one, an interesting one. Mm. Also, what you've just said leads me to, actually, let's make this the final question because 
I've taken up enough of your time already. So <laughs> if the LS60 wireless was not an active loudspeaker with all the kind of crossover done in the digital domain, so pa like basically a passive speaker with a passive crossover, and let's say it was the full cabinet because you don't need the bottom section to run the electronics, what would it sound like? Uh, well... It, would it sound terrible? Yeah, it, was, it wouldn't sound great. It would be pretty disappointing, I think. It wouldn't have a lot of bass because there's not a lot of cabinet volume there. And mm. um, even if you had the full volume of the cabinet, it's a very tall, slim, full volume. So you get terrible standing waves top to bottom that would give you mid-range coloration. Right. And, yeah, so, I, I mean, it would... I mean, put it this way. If you put an R5 next to the LS60 wireless, they're about the same height, they're about the same depth, but mm. the LS50 wireless is about half the width. Mm -hmm. So it would be substantially worse in the base than an R5. So, because the reason I asked that question, I guess it's kind of a leading question, really, because it seems to me that you can do far more from limited box dimensions with a digitally active loudspeaker than you can with a passive, yeah. with the same box dimensions, yeah. right? Absolutely. I mean, that's the reason we don't see passive subs. I, I mean, right. that, that's been the, the case for... 20 years you don't see don't see passive subs because you you know nobody wants a the size of box you would need to make a passive sub go down to 20 hertz right nobody, nobody's got space for that so you know we're all used to a sub has to be active and, and it's kind of the same the same game you know but trying to push it further and put it into a, a three-way active speaker so mm. yeah you're absolutely right. This is it, it's kind of new territory in some ways, but not in others. That uh, if you look at um, uh, PA systems, they've all been active for you know at least fifteen years, and it's yes. because of advantages like these. You know, when you're touring a system around the world, you want to make it as small as possible so you, you can hire one less less trailer, <laughs> things mm. like that. Yeah, right. Um, so it's kind of saying, well, how do we use this in a way that gives something? new and exciting and versatile for, for you know, people who are into home audio. So that's the gist of what we've done. So, I, you know, when we started talking, I suggested that one, I don't know whether it's a misconception or not, but people might think that this is a, a floor-standing LS50 wireless. And I guess we've kind of, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm understanding from you that that's not the case. But equally, could we then ask, is it, a bit like an activated blade two. I mean, without yeah, the shape. Can, like, yeah, yeah. I mean, without the shape, um, the 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 proportions don't really make the shape possible because the Unicube is taking up the whole width. But yeah, it's mm. the same. Certainly, in terms of the system and the single apparent source and what comes with that in terms of sound staging, that's from yeah from blade two, and then other things borrowed elsewhere, like from the KC sixty two. So. It's it's not LS fifty floor stander. It's but it's 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 its own thing, and it borrows all these different bits of tech from from elsewhere. And and it's an exciting speaker, I think, as a kind of uh, line in the sand for us because it, it's this jumping point of saying, okay, this is like fly by wire. Now we've made a you know a hardware that you can't use passively. It has to have the mm. DSP. It has to have the power. And and that's a that's an exciting uh, point to be at. And I think you know. The proofs in the pudding, but the listening experience is great. It's really, an, uh, I think the results quite uh, astounding in 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 quite a few respects. So, 
yeah, we're certainly excited about it and had visions of a product like this for quite a long time in you know in R and D. Jack Ockley Brown, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, John. A pleasure as always. You have been listening to the Darko Audio Podcast with me, John Darko, and Kef slash GP Acoustics, Jack Ockley Brown. This episode was produced by Nick McCorriston and music came from Ben Pitt.